Now, you follow as I read. I'm not going to read the whole chapter this morning, but I'm going to read you, I hope, what will give you the uh, the gist of the story that takes place in, um, in, in Joshua chapter 8. We'll begin at verse 1 and read through verse 9, and then we'll skip to verse 18. Here we go. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city, and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. So Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai, and Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night. And he commanded them, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready. And I and all the people who are with me will approach the city, and when they come out against us, just as before, we shall flee before them. And they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city, for they will say they are fleeing from us just as before, so we will flee before them. Then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city, for the Lord your God will give it into your hand. As soon And as soon as you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. So Joshua sent them out, and they went to the place of ambush and lay between Bethel and Ai, to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent that night among the people. Now to verse 18. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city, and the men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place. And as soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city, captured it, and they hurried to set the city on fire. And when the men of the Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven. And they had no power to flee this way or that, for the people who fled to the wilderness turned back against the pursuers. And when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city and that the smoke of the city went up, then they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. And the others came out from the city against them, so they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side, and Israel struck them down until there was left none that survived or escaped. But the king of Ai, they took alive and brought him near to Joshua. When Israel uh, had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness where they pursued them, and all of them to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword, all Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. But Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. Only the livestock and the spoil of that city Israel Israel took as their plunder, according to the word of the Lord that he had commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins, as it is to this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree, and they threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones, which stands there to this day. The grass withers and uh, the flower fades. But the word of our God, it endures forever. 
Uh, guys, you've probably seen uh, that commercial on television uh, for uh, gastrol, gastrol, gastrol motor oil or whatever it's called, GTX. And uh, the, the, the punchline in the, in the commercial is, um, this is not motor oil. This is liquid engineering. I kind of like that, you know, kind of catchy. But, but the funny part of the commercial um, for, at least for me, was, you know, in the commercial, they, they have this car and it's driving down the road and it's got an anchor that it's towing in the back. And there's these two cops on the side and they've got their radar gun and they're, you've seen this? And they're, and they're just yucking it up, having a big time, uh, laughing at this car and they clock this car at going 16 miles an hour. And they just think that's hilarious, you know, and, and because this anchor, has just slowed them down. The weight of dragging the thing has just slowed them down to almost nothing. Guys, sin is like that. Sin does that kind of thing to you. You remember, what, what I'm really trying to remind you of is last week in, in Joshua chapter 7, Israel had to deal with sin. They had to deal with what Ai had, with, with what Achan had done. And now they've, they've dealt with Achan. Sin is eliminated. It's dealt with properly. And it's time to get back to the battle. It's time to get back to the path uh, on which they had just gotten off of. But guys, make no mistake, sin will always do that to you. It'll, it'll become a real anchor on your soul. And it drags you off the path that you were supposed to be on. It, um, it diverts you. But... When sin is dealt with properly, it's time to get back to the battle. Now, guys, that's what I want to get to in a minute, and we're going to get to it in a, in a few minutes, because that, to me, is the, it's the major lesson of this part of the book of Joshua, about how, how we deal with our sin and how it restores us, um, it puts us back on the right path. We're going to get to that. But, but before we do that, um, there's a few things in the text that I, I just want to point out to you and kind of expand on them a little bit. They're, they're what thing, they're what Steve Brown, you know, I mentioned Steve every now and then, but um, what Steve Brown used to call side roads, they're not the major part of the text, but they're in the text. They're issues that are contained in the story. They're not the major part of the story, but they're in the story. And... And I think they have profit for God's people. So let me, um, let me show you a couple of them that are pretty heavy. And then one that's not so heavy. But then, and then we'll come to what is the, um, the main theme of the text. First of all, guys, um, stories like this, like Joshua chapter 8, are very offensive to modern people. Um, they consider all this, this stuff just displays of bloodthirsty barbarians. 
Um, and so as a result of stories like these, we, the Christian church, gets lumped into that category with Muslim terrorists and the other guys that carry signs picketing funerals of fallen servicemen. Because what you've got here is a, is a whole city's population is destroyed. You've got a man, the king, that's hanged on a tree. And so the, the, the um, modern people call this, I mean, look at this as just utter savagery. And, and consequently, the Christian church gets a bad rap as a result of stories like these. And what I want to try to do is just, is just help you, just to give you a bit of context. Actually, it's not going to be me giving you the context. It's the scripture is going to give you the context. Because I, I, I think it will help if you understand what's going on here. And there are a couple of statements in the Pentateuch that I think will help you understand and, and be more comfortable with stories like you find in, in Joshua chapter 8. Let me, let me read you two verses out of... Um, Deuteronomy 9, this is verse 4 and 5. He says, Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, where it is because of the wickedness of those nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess the land, but because of the wickedness of these nations... The Lord your God is driving them out before you. One other, um, in, in the book of Leviticus, which, which I think says it at least more graphically. This is in um, Leviticus 18. Just quickly. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. Now, how do you like that language? The land vomited out its inhabitants. Now, guys, do, do you see the point that, that I'm, I'm trying to make? Joshua chapter 8 is not a scene of, of slaughter that's brought on by revenge. You know, kind of like you saw in Kosovo and, and um, Bosnia back in the late 90s. Joshua chapter 8 is not a, a, a scene of slaughter brought on by revenge or some kind of naked aggression. Like you saw in um, before World War II, the Japanese and China and gave rise to the book, The Rape of Nanking. That's not what you have in Joshua chapter 8, guys. Certainly it is, it is gruesome to consider. But this is not the annihilation of some kind of innocent people. It is a display of God's judgment against wickedness. It is the land vomiting out its inhabitants due to the wickedness of those inhabitants. It's nothing on display in Joshua 8 that you wouldn't expect from the judge of the universe. It's, it's, it's not even the, 
the good guys winning over the bad guys. That's not what happens. In fact, Deuteronomy makes that very clear. You're not getting this land because you're righteous. No, don't say that. Don't say that we got their land because we're right. No. That's not what's going on here. This is, this is simply a reminder. That is Joshua 8. Is a reminder of God's hatred of sin and his determination to punish it. And modern people hate that idea. The unbelieving world hates this idea of a judging God against sin. And they do all of these gymnastics to try and eliminate the idea. And I don't blame them. It's not a pleasant thought. But to write these things off and to write Christianity off in the name of some kind of 21st century modern um, civilized sensibilities, that is to miss the whole point of the text, the whole point of the story. Guys, this is a story about God's determination to oppose and annihilate wickedness wherever it exists. It is him fulfilling promises that he gave that I read you out of Deuteronomy and in Leviticus. That's, that's, that's what's going on here. And, and by the way, as for this man hanging on a tree, guys, um, that's, not the, um, that's not a means of death. That's a sequel to death. That is, um, Deuteronomy 21 explains that the, that, the, that, the, that the king is executed and then he is put on a tree uh, as kind of an example of a warning to others. It was, a, it was anybody guilty of a capital offense was, um, was hung on a tree as a warning to others. It had to do with the, um, the deterrent value of capital punishment. All I'm trying to do, guys, is to help you understand scenes like this. Because they become so objectionable to 21st century unbelievers. And uh, we are accused of being just as guilty as, um, as anybody else. And what I'm telling you is, is what you have here is not some kind of vengeful God, some kind of a naked aggression by the part of Israel. You have God doing what he said he's going to do. It's a reminder. That God has an inflexible hatred against sin and will deal with it. That's what these stories are about. Now, there's a second side road that I want. Actually, there's three I want you to see, but that's the first one. Here's the second one. I want you to look at, um, at verse 1 with me. And uh, this will really put you to sleep. But, um, and the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise, go up to Ai, see, or behold, I have given into your hand the king of Ai. Do you, do you notice what he says? That is, I have given, that is not I will give, but he speaks of the victory as already having been won. Ai is already defeated. Um, a future event is spoken of as a present reality. God speaks of the future. 
as an accomplished fact. Um, Now, guys, how can God do things like that unless this God is indeed in control of the future? And, And we as Christians say that he is. And we like that. We like the idea that, that God is in control of the future. At least we like most of it. Here's the part we don't like. Listen to David when he says, um, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me. When as yet there were none of them. We don't like that part. Did you hear what was said there? Every day of my life was written before there we even came to pass. The future spoken of as a present reality. See, we like part of that, but we don't like all of it. Because when we read a statement like that in Psalm 139, it's, it has to do with our freedom. We feel hemmed in. Uh, and you know how we Westerners, uh, you know, like our freedom. Guys, um... Theologians speak of God, God's attributes in two categories. I mean, this is free of charge this morning, guys. Um, they speak of communicable attributes and incommunicable attributes. You ever heard of that? Don't you feel smarter? God has communicable attributes, and communicable attributes are those with, with which He shares, He shares those, those attributes with His creatures. Like mercy. You know, we have some mercy among us. Not much, but we got a little. Holiness. We got a little of that. You know, love. Those are attributes that God has that he shares with us. Those are called communicable attributes. But there are what they call incommunicable attributes. Things that he doesn't share with his creatures. All the omnis. You know what those are? Like omnipresence. Omniscience. Omnipotence. And all of those describe a God that pretty much defies us to explain him. For instance, it it, it describes a God who lives, get ready, he lives in timelessness and spacelessness. I like that. Guys, what I'm telling you is... What you see in a statement like Joshua 8.1 is a God who is in charge of the future. He controls the future, and thus he can speak of it as a present reality because he is omnipresent, because he is omniscient. Now, um, and so that part we like. We like the idea that God makes promises and that he keeps his promises. We get through tough times in our lives because of God. We believe that God keeps his promises. You know, we, uh, when, when I was raising three girls, I, I never, or at least tried not to, ever make them any promises. You know, they'd say, well, Daddy, are we going to Disney World? And I'd say, well, yeah. And they'd say, you promise? And I'd say, no, I'm not promising. Because I knew I couldn't control it. Things could happen that I didn't break my promise. The best laid plans of mice and men come to naught. But that is not true of this God, ladies and gentlemen. He speaks of the future as a present reality because he's in charge. He's in control of that future. 
And, and as for your freedom, I, I want you to notice that in this story, um, it's, it's philosophically challenging, but I want you to notice. Guys, even in terms of our future, uh, or in terms of our freedom with this God who's in charge of the future, he tells them that his promises does not render unnecessary the use of means. Did you get that? That means that they still got to go fight a battle. I'm promising you victory, but you still got to go fight those guys. I have to go fight a battle in a way that God outlines, in a way that God specifies. I fight as if it's all up to me, knowing that it is all up to God. Now, guys, I'm telling you both parts. The part that seems to infringe upon your freedom and the part of him being faithful to his promises, they're both good. Now, there's one other side road, then we'll get to the main theme of the text. I I want you to see in this text how unnecessary is greed. Do you remember last, in chapter 7, Achan saw all that silver and gold and God had told them that that was to be devoted to him and Achan stole it and he got himself in big trouble. Did you notice that in this um, story, chapter uh, verse 2, only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Different from Jericho. Jericho, don't take any of it, don't touch it. AI, it's all for you. Guys, um, if Achan would have simply waited, he would have had all he wanted with God's blessing. But he didn't. He didn't wait, he didn't obey. And it turned into a nightmare. Guys, um, for you who continually wonder why finances seem to be such a problem for you, you know, your your problems may be very complex. I don't know them. Um, But the first place, or the first question that I would ask is, um, am I being obedient with what God has provided? And then I would do what Achan didn't do. I would, um, I would wait, and I would obey. God has no intention of impoverishing us. But once you begin to doubt that, then we begin to grab, we begin to hoard, we begin to take what is not ours. What, what people of faith do is that they wait, and they obey, and then they watch God provide. Now, guys, all of that is just side roads in the text, which brings us to really the lesson that I want you to see. The lesson that I want you to take home this morning, and it has to do with restoring lost ground. Now, let me tell you what I mean. Um, Did you notice in this story how much trouble Israel had to go to to overthrow Ai? 
I mean, you got your Sam Bush, you know, you got these people over here, you got these back here, you got to set it on fire, you got to, you know, this, this whole big plan, this whole big scheme is executed now. Now that, now that Israel's taking care of her sin, she is now required this, this, this Herculean effort, no little pain on her part, in an effort to return to the path of blessing that she was once on. That is, she got off that path in terms of uh, Achan's sin. And so now, to get back on that path, there's this whole huge effort that has to be uh, executed so that they can be restored to that path. Guys, 30 minutes of disobedience. Can cost you years. A 30 minute sin. Can cost you months and years. To try and. Get back. But the good news is ladies and gentlemen. You can get back. And you must. But it's going to require a whole huge thing. You know, the, the, the prophet Joel talks about God restoring the days that the locusts have eaten. You got some locust-eating days, do you? You know, guys, um, part of the privilege of my job is that I listen, I get to listen to people's stories. And I have people weekly tell me about a present life that is so complex. So fouled up, so entangled. I had a woman ask me just recently, and it was profound. She says, she said, is there a way that I can get back to a place where God is pleased with me once again? The short answer, ladies and gentlemen, to that question is, yes. What I'm drawing your attention to, guys, is I want you to notice the effort, no little pain, this Herculean effort that Israel had to execute so that she could be restored. You know, guys, um, I, I quoted this, this years ago. I, I don't know if I've ever quoted it here, but years ago I read a study. And it was produced by the National Association of Banking or the National Banking Association or something like that. It was out of D.C. And their findings were this. If you miss one mortgage payment, then it is, it is three times as hard to catch up next month. If you miss two mortgage payments, it is six times as hard to catch up the next month. Because, ladies and gentlemen, the further you get away, 
it is to get back. But my friend, you cannot stay out in that locust-eaten field that you're in. You can't stay out there. One of the beauties of the biblical gospel, of the biblical God, is His willingness to restore us who have stupidly decided to defy Him. Guys, I'm not making this up. That is His willingness to restore us. This afternoon, go read the book of Judges and watch how He again and He again and He again restores His people. But my dear brother and sister in Christ, you can't stay out there. You've got to get back. Okay, Jimmy, okay, how? Well, guys, I hope that you will look at this with me. If you've got a Bible in your lap, I want you to turn to the book of Isaiah, chapter 1. The book of Isaiah opens with God describing his absolute disgust with Jerusalem and Judah. He goes on from there in chapter 1 to talk about even their worship services make him nauseous. Their worship nauseates him. Imagine that. And then he comes to verse 16 and he says this. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel... You shall be eaten by the sword, or the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Guys, those are words of repentance. How do I get back? It's wrapped up in that one word that maybe maybe is hard to understand, but I don't really think it is. Repentance. I deal with my sin the way that God tells me to deal with my sin. I wash myself. I remove the, the, the evil. I cease to do evil. and do. Those are all words of repentance. You can't live out there, ladies and gentlemen. Here is a map. It's a map for you to get back. And you look at it and you say, oh, but Dr. Young, it looks so hard. I can understand that. 
but staying where you are. is harder. And you know it is. One of the beauties of this biblical gospel, this biblical God, is that he opens a path for his people to be restored. Now take it. Guys, I can't quit until I've said at least a brief something about verse 29 in the text. It's, um, it's where Joshua takes the, uh, the king of Ai and nails him to a tree. And by the way, I said that's not a means of execution. That's a, that's a sequel. He's already been executed. He's nailed to a tree. Um, he's hung on a tree and, and in perfect accord with Mosaic law, he is taken down at sunset. A guilty king, an avowed opponent of God and Israel, becomes a curse, receiving a just punishment for a life of rebellion against God. He, he, he endures a fate that is, that is reserved for the worst of the worst criminals. And yet when we come to the New Testament, we find another one of those. We find another one of those those men getting nailed to the tree. And yet in in, in the one in the New Testament, the, the one who gets the same treatment as that criminal in Joshua 8, his his is worse than Joshua 8. Because he gets nailed alive to a tree to bring about death. And the, and the one that got nailed to that tree, he was no opponent of God's. In fact, he said, my meat and my drink is to do the will of my Father who is in heaven. On one occasion, he said to his audience, is there anyone who can accuse me of sin? And not one person said a word. Then why did he end up on a tree? Paul tells us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Did you get it? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the gospel. A a, a story that says our sin is so great that Jesus had to die. That his love was so great that he was willing to die. Is that the Jesus you know? If not, you can change that today.
My Father, first, I, I want to pray for your people who are here, who know that because of some stupid, rebellious, foolish choices made in the recent past or the not-so-recent past, their souls are ill. There's very little health. And I pray, O oh God, that you would show them the beauty of repentance. The thing that will bring us back to the place where our sins no longer torment us. And the shame that we deal with so often can be forgotten. I pray that you will cause them to see that you are eager and willing to restore. And then, Father, for those who have never seen the beauty of this Savior, would you remind them that the reason that he died is not to give us an example. He died because he had to. Because my sin was so awful. Nothing but the death of the Son of God could pay for it. And yet, he loved me so much that he was willing to pay that price. Father, would you, um, would you communicate the beauty of all that to those who have not yet seen it? Do it by the power of the Holy Spirit, because unless he does it, it will never be done. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name.